The history of social anxiety is one best studied by extrapolation. For this podcast, we will be looking at research conducted by Mark Antoine Kroc in 2015 throughout his academic article, A History of Anxiety, from Hippocrates to DSM. Allusions to other texts in this podcast have all been researched and written about by Kroc. He noted that Latin Stoic philosophical writings, such as the treatises of Cicero and Seneca, predate and align with modern views on features or treatments of anxiety. Cicero, 106 BC to 43 BC, wrote that affliction, worry, and anxiety are called disorders on account of the analogy between a troubled mind and a diseased body. In this description, anxious effects are separated from sadness and classified as illness. This seems to follow a struggle to name and categorize experiences as symptoms. The first task in acknowledging anxiety was in finding the words for it. Around 300 BC, a philosopher's apprentice, Lucretius, wrote that men were still lords and riches, and yet had the anxious heart which vexed life unpausingly with torments of the mind. Ancient Greece then expressed an understanding of what a state of anxiety was like, and interest in causes for irrational, prolonged cases. The research continues to our next focus, Joseph Levy Valency, a professor of psychiatry in Paris who died in Auschwitz. In his writings, he defined the state of anxiety as primarily cognitive. Note that, in contrast, angoise was defined as the experience of spastic constriction of voluntary or involuntary muscle fibers. This mirrors our current definition process, where fear has specific and immediate physical reactions, but a state of anxiety or worry is more broad and mental. Up next, in 1621, Robert Burton's treatise titled The Anatomy of Melancholy. It aimed to encapsulate writings from antiquity throughout the 17th century. Kroc mentions that this treatise is generally quoted in the context of depression, with a notable exception. At that time, the meaning of melancholia was not limited to depression, but encompassed anxiety. Generally, the diagnosis of melancholia could be applied to a variety of clinical pictures with negative effect or internalizing symptoms. There were criteria for diagnosis and active attempts to label the connection between fear and sadness. Burton wrote, first cousin to sorrow is fear, an assistant and principal agent in procuring the mischief, a cause and symptom. This began to morph into what was, in essence, research on comorbidity. There were noted cases of individuals who were sad, but unafraid, depression without anxiety, and those with extreme specific fear, say the phobia of being in front of a crowd. Consider also Cost and Granger, who worked with over 2,000 reports of consultations of French physicians from the 16th and 18th century. They aimed to offer retrospective diagnoses based on DSM-IV criteria. One case in 1743 was deemed to show usual symptoms of panic attacks, lived under the diagnosis of vapors and melancholia. From around 1665 to 1750, vapors was the working term for a nervous disorder. This reinforces the idea that melancholia translates naturally to our modern-day understanding of anxiety and depression. With the 1980s came an update to the DSM. The DSM-3 noted a chapter of anxiety disorders called phobic disorders, subdivided into agoraphobia, with or without panic attacks, social phobia, and simple phobia. There were also anxiety states, subdivided into panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and OCD. There was also a section devoted specifically for PTSD. DSM-3 made note of childhood-specific disorders, separation anxiety, avoidant disorder of childhood or adolescence, and overanxious disorder. In essence, symptoms of anxiety have been looked at throughout human history. The terms and groupings surrounded anxiety have varied. At the very least, the term vapors has fallen out of style. But in spite of the fluctuating terminology and attempts to define, diagnose, and treat signs of anxiety, all have existed as a fairly steady constant.
Social anxiety disorder is the avoidance, anxious anticipation, or distress in the feared social or performance situation that interferes significantly with a person's everyday routine, occupational functioning, social activities, or even relationships being family or friend relationships. Social anxiety disorder is a chronic mental health condition in which social interactions trigger anxiety. There are many common triggers that show signs of this disorder. For example, public speaking, going on dates, meeting new people, interviewing for a new job, and many more. One common sign for social anxiety is fear of humiliation and embarrassment lasting for at least six months. It is said that a very common risk factor for being diagnosed is bullying. According to the Social Anxiety Institute, 92% of people diagnosed with this disorder were bullied in their childhood. Typically, the age of onset for social anxiety is a young adolescent age of 13 to 14. Another risk factor could be environmental factors such as maltreatment in the home setting. Family studies show that children with a first degree relative have a two to six times greater chance of having social anxiety. According to the DSM-5 criteria, your healthcare provider will diagnose this disorder from a description of your symptoms and behavioral patterns. During your appointment, you'll be asked to explain your symptoms and discuss situations in which these symptoms present themselves. Clinicians say when in social situations you will experience nervousness, possible panic attacks, and high levels of fear. Statistics say social anxiety disorder affects approximately 15 million adults. According to the U.S. National Comorbidity Survey, social anxiety has a 12-month prevalence rate of 6.8%, placing it as the third most common mental disorder in the United States. Statistically, the form of anxiety is more common in women than in men. Also, despite the availability of effective treatments, fewer than 5% of people with social anxiety disorders seek treatment in the year following the initial, initial onset, and more than a third of people report symptoms for 10 or more years before seeking help. Personally, I am living with social anxiety in the present day. As a child, I was bullied in school, which made a major impact on me. As I matured, I started having anxiety about meeting new people out of fear of being teased again. It got to the point where I began avoiding people and I had a hard time making friends. Eventually, my anxiety impact started impacting my everyday life and social functioning. I feared presentations, group work, and more social situations. When it started affecting my grades, my mom took me to a psychologist to figure out the issue. I was then diagnosed with social anxiety disorder at age 15. I have now started to branch out of my comfort zone with the help of my medication and some exposure therapy. Not enough to just look at the facts from a clinician's perspective. So when I did my research, I really wanted to understand this disorder by understanding those who live with it every day. As I did this, I noticed the trends of what those with social anxiety feel every day. First, I'm going to start off by talking about the misconceptions. A lot of people with social anxiety receive similar reactions from others. People think they're mean, rude, or have some sort of anger issue. In an article from Huffington Post, I read about stories of those with social anxiety disorder. A person said, this occurs because social cues and verbal communication play an important role when people are forming opinions of you, and my anxiety often makes me come off as being cold or disinterested. Ironically enough though, they mention how they are most interested in getting to know a person, or when they're most interested to getting to know the person. Those symptoms, they become worse, and that's when coming off as mean or uninterested causes the most problems for them. Now the next trend that I picked up on is fear of judgment. 
for a lot of those with social anxiety, they worry about how others will react. And they say they feel the pressure of being negatively evaluated. I saw an example of this actually as I watched a video of a teenage girl struggling with this disorder. She had a conflict uh, with using social media because she was worried of how others would respond to her comments. So she just ignored them. And she also had worry in that same video that I watched the, a teenage girl, she had uh, another worry in the same day. She uh, mentioned that she had an upcoming presentation in the class and she had these constant neg negative thoughts in her head. Like, I'll look stupid, or they'll know I'm nervous, or my voice will sound weird. You know, I feel as though being a little nervous to speak in front of others is typical for most students, but for her and others with social anxiety disorder, it doesn't just end there. The negative thoughts even continue after. It's common for those with social anxiety to overanalyze after any social interaction, and they typically have regrets. Also, those with social anxiety feel or tend to isolate themselves. An, a Very Well Minds article includes this quote, I feel like the shadow amongst the masses. I feel most at peace then. The time when you're on your own and no one acknowledges you are the most freeing and less vulnerable times. Now, while I read those, the biggest takeaway for me is being in isolation can cause the feeling of loneliness. And isolating themselves is easier than the stress of being around others, but this avoidance can lead to more issues. This is why many of those with social anxiety so disorder they wear clothes that allow them to hide. In another video I watched, the girl tried, she spent hours trying to find less revealing and showy clothes. And this is mainly so she doesn't stand out and she doesn't want to get people talking any more than she already thinks they do. Now next I'm gonna talk about false perception. Social anxiety disorder commonly can be seen as just being weird, shy, or strange. This is the reasoning why so many people have troubles and delays of diagnosis. I read two separate articles in which there were two men, one named Tobias Atkins and the other being a professional football player named Ricky Williams, who weren't diagnosed until later in life because they were labeled with those same words. And when you're told you're shy or you're weird, you think you'll grow out of it and you don't believe it's a chronic treatable disease that it is. And those with this disorder also with social anxiety, they also experience common physical symptoms I noticed through my research. Um, those symptoms or some of those symptoms can be fast heart beating, blushing, sweating, nausea, trouble breathing, breathing and trembling. And this is this causes problems for them because when you experience these symptoms, it makes you stand out even more, increasing how much anxiety you have at that moment. My overall takeaway is through evaluating these stories I read and watched about the people trying to navigate life with social anxiety, I really gained a new perspective. And so I just kind of sh want to share with you some of the biggest things I was able to get from my research. I now better understand the severity of this disorder. For many people, things like driving near others or shopping are typical tasks that we don't typically think twice about, but for those with social anxiety, it can trigger a lot of issues. Also, they're constantly in a state of worrying. They worry about upcoming phone calls or any enter, even entering a room full of people, and these cause impairment of their function of life and make them want to avoid the world. You know, anxiety can affect anyone. I read about a working woman, a teenage student, an entertainer, even an athlete, and these people all lead different lives. On the outside looking in, you think they have nothing in common, but social anxiety is what connects them. Various meta-analyses have argued over whether cognitive methods or drugs are the key to improving day-to-day -day life with social anxiety disorder. 
One factor they can agree on, however, is even if circumstances for social anxiety disorder are improved, you will not be able to make the disorder go away completely. So one method for cognitive, for cognitive behavioral therapy is exposure, which according to Hamburg involves the individual together with the therapist making a fear and avoidance hierarchy, meaning a list of situations which triggers could appear, then working in a range of lowest to highest. This method generally takes the form of imagined situations or role playing if an individual were to be in a therapy session and the individual will be confronting the anxiety producing situation in itself at a session. In the case of exposure, as Robot, Hamburg, and Holloway say, full concentration is required. Immediate, immediate negative evaluations of other people and self are discouraged, and avoidance is the number one enemy. Safety behaviors are utilized by people to lower a perceived likelihood of unfriendly judgment by others around them. Even if they can show up in various different ways, they usually go into the accompanying fear. Individuals usually take favor to these behaviors because they think and feel that the behaviors have helped them in the past. However, these behaviors do have consequences, including not actually helping stop negative thoughts and the fact that the individual could be focusing more on keeping him or herself together and less on the main task itself. Another method is applied relaxation or relaxation training, which is utilized to help lower the amount of arousal that could show up during or before events that are feared. Muscle exercise has individuals focus on muscle groups, 16 first, then going up over time, as the individuals tense them for five to seven, 10 seconds and then release that tension. These are done in sessions first, according to Hemberg, and then they are done as work outside of sessions. Cue controls are also utilized for the word relax in order to connect that word with their relaxation skills, starting the process with faster relaxation. Another method is social skills training, which is based off of the idea that anxiety may lower social interaction skills, or at least lower an individual's confidence in enacting those skills. This involves a variety of modeling and behavior rehearsal, feedback on how to improve, social reinforcement, and homework assignments. However, the amount of success that each aspect of social skills training in itself to individuals is unknown because of the amount of exposure that goes into the process. Cognitive restructuring involves an individual having inaccurate views about how a situation may have occurred. Therefore, the individual is usually instructed to track negative thoughts before during and after a situation that triggers anxiety, and in doing so, tracking any inaccuracies in those thoughts via behavioral experiments, which, according to Beck et al., as cited by Hemberg, are assignments for individuals to accomplish in order to combat inaccurate beliefs. In this case, a therapist will make a representation of a disputation of automatic thoughts. Then the client, together with that therapist, practices identifying the negative thought process in those thoughts. After that, the individual should be able to obtain something from more rational thoughts based on their new information. Cognitive behavioral group therapy utilizes pretty much the same methods, including exposure and cognitive restructuring. Though in a group of six patients or more, in sessions that typically last up to two and a half hours for 12 weeks. The first two sessions involve an overview of exposure, cognitive restructuring, followed by practicing those skills in future homework. 
After that, the groups are led through imagined scenarios one by one along with cognitive restructuring exercises afterward. Homework involves situations in real life settings with pre and post exposure cognitive restructuring exercises. Despite the arguments over cognitive methods and drugs, it can be said that various people's lives were improved following these sessions in a future checkup session six months after the treatment ended. Medications such as monoamine oxidase inhibitors or MAOIs and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, are possible physical treatments for social anxiety disorder. According to the world about me now, however, despite some meta-analyses implying that at least a few of these medications are more powerful than the cognitive restructuring and exposure methods, and other information implying that few research between comparisons from CBT to medication exists, relying solely on these drugs is not recommended. Some possible future directions, not much research has been done in combining medications with cognitive methods. An outcome that researchers hope might happen, however, according to Hamburg, is that medications and CBT might synergize with each other. Another outcome could be that not much of a difference is made if these methods happen to come into contact with each other. Another outcome could be that CBT could lower the value of medications, of medications or vice versa. Treatment for children and adolescents is important as well, especially because research for this is even less common than treatment for adults. The only real evidence includes the Coben Cat Notebook, in which, according to Roe Bacadow, it was designed with methods similar to CBT in order to help children and adolescents with social anxiety disorder. Any questions on this podcast should be directed to Dr. Andrew White. Email whiteac at hiram.edu. Phone number 330-569-5227 or to his office at 215 Bates Hall in Hiram College.